Hi, it's Lou. I just wanted to let you know what's new and what's still around for Square Pegs in 2022. The Patreon membership is still up and running. The address for that is patreon.com forward slash square peg round hole. And don't forget that W for the word hole. I really appreciate any contribution that anyone can provide to help me to keep this podcast going and to pay for some of the ongoing costs associated with it. It's very, very much appreciated. So thank you so much to my Patreon members as always. Something I did develop at the end of last year was a new website. On that website, there are podcast episodes, transcripts, there's a huge resource library, there's news and information on advocacy projects. The address for the website is squarepegroundhole.com.au. Many people know I have two Facebook groups or pages. There's a public page and there's a closed group. Please feel free to apply to join the closed group. It's where we discuss a lot of the episodes and some of the advocacy work that we're working on. And I just finally wanted to say it is my only ambition to speak on behalf of parents when I speak. I will never speak on behalf of any group to which I cannot represent with lived experience. I don't speak on behalf of neurodivergent people. However, I am very happy to bring neurodivergent people along to discussions and to share with us all. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I hope you find it helpful. Thank you. Thanks so much to Lawena and Jody for becoming the latest Patreon members. So appreciated, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent kids at home, at school and in the workplace. Today we're talking to Sarah Humphreys from Inclusive Schools Australia. Inclusive Schools Australia was born from Sarah and Janice Aitken's combined passion to see all young people reach their full potential and for all young people to have access to quality learning opportunities at school. They believe that inclusive schools welcome and respond to the diverse needs of all young people and their families. Their mission is to support each and every child to access and achieve from the same curriculum and to uphold their rights to an inclusive education under the UNCRPD Article 24 and the Disability Standards for Education. They work with schools to design inclusive learning programs and assessment processes and provide advocacy for parents and young people with disability. Today we're going to learn more about Sarah and her work that supports Square Pegs. Our chat focuses on inclusive education, inclusive teaching practices like universal design for learning, and Sarah's work supporting parent advocacy in schools. Yet another wonderful expert joining us with more for us to learn.
Welcome to the podcast, Sarah Humphreys. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. I love the British accent already. (laughs) (laughs) It's hanging in there. I've had uh, Lydia, who's Irish, on here and a few others. So, yeah, excellent. Right. Well, love it. Finally, we're talking, Sarah. I'm sorry about last year. I was meant to interview you last year, but um, as we all know, last year was last year. So, so um, we're here. We're finally doing it. It's exciting. I'm going to start us off with the icebreaker questions because that's what they're there for, to break the ice. So the first one is, Sarah, what is your favourite animal? And why is that your favourite animal? Okay, that's an easy question for me. Favourite animal is the lion. Um, I am a Leo, so that's obviously draws me to that. But I just think they're such beautiful animals, stunning to look at, and the way the females in the pride work together to provide for the whole family, all-round great beast. (laughs) That is awesome. I'm a Leo as well. Are you going to tell me what date your birthday is? 22nd. Oh, I'm the 13th. Oh, there you go. <laughs> oh, and that's it. Do you have cats at home? No, not a cat person, dog person. So I've got a Labrador. So that would be my, you know, obviously my uh, favourite pet would be Labrador. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that's good. We haven't had lion yet. In relation to the world in general, and I'm sure that actually it's probably a very easy question to answer. If there was one thing you could change in the world, what would it be and why? Yeah, absolutely. Right, right now it's the Ukraine for, for, for them to have peace, for the troops to move out and, yeah, let them have life back to normal. Absolutely. I guess that time stamps when we're recording. Russia have just invaded Ukraine, haven't they? So horrific times and the whole world's thinking of them. So totally, of course, you're going to answer that question that way. The next question is, could you now start tell us a little bit about your life growing up so we can get to know you, you know, how did you find yourself doing what you're doing today? Sort of what brought you here and what is the connection to the square peg trying to fit into the round hole? I mean, obviously, as you picked up with my accent, I grew up in the in the south of England. Yeah, I have a, an older brother. We had a Labrador as kids, you know, just sort of um, very normal life growing up. And I, it's really not until I've sort of in, in later years when people ask me how I got into this field of inclusion and uh, working with students with disability that I've sort of made the connection with a family member growing up and we never thought of him as different because he was just John and he had a profound hearing loss and you know in those days he had the two hearing aids that were on a strapped on to his chest and for us as kids growing up it was just fascinating so we were used to just thinking about going about things a different way to make sure he was included in everything that we did. Yes, yeah, so for, for me, I think it's growing up with people who, you know, ne- needed to participate in, in a different way to be able to do the same thing. So it was perfectly normal for me, you know, and that's very much at the heart of everything that I do is, is that, promoting that message that, diversity is to be expected it's completely normal yes that's right you were lucky really to have that experience because a lot of people grow up and that's what, what we're all here about isn't it but a lot of people do grow up without that exposure to these fabulous people who are so different from us 
And I know when I started work at Cerebral Palsy Alliance, that's what really, like, I was on a high for months. And then I started to realise, well, why have I got to nearly 50 years old and never really been exposed to these fabulous people who are all so different? I wanted to start by asking you, I mean, obviously, when I was doing some research for this episode, I looked at your website and I noticed that you, and you've already alluded to it, that you have a focus on inclusive education. So... It's a good question, I think, to ask at the beginning, to ask you, what does inclusive education mean to you? For, for me, that's, again, it's a very easy question. It's all children being educated alongside their, their peers, accessing the same curriculum, albeit in a, presented in a different way so that they can be successful. But in a nutshell, it's that. So it's, it's underpinned by general comment for Uh, Article 24 from the United Nations. And for me, that definition of inclusion is very straightforward. And I get, I do get frustrated when I see there are, I call it the 50 shades of grey of inclusion. You know, there really shouldn't be. It's black and white. You're either in and included or or it's something else. So that that notion of um, children being in the class alongside their same age peers, accessing content that aligns to their age and stage of schooling is, is what inclusion, is, is, is the basis for inclusion. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? And yet there's just so much controversy around it and, and you know, that the difference between inclusion and integration is what really impacts our community, neurodivergent students, because we're not, it's not as obvious. So, yeah, that's really important factor. Yeah, well, good, that's excellent. So... The next question I wanted to ask you about was about Universal Design for Learning or UDL. So last year I did have a podcast episode where I interviewed, I was so lucky to interview Lauren Swankart, who's a teacher that you would know, uh, a leader in this field of inclusive education. And she did focus a lot of her talk about, about UDL. And I know she does lots of fabulous talks on that as well. How I wanted to understand you how is how are you driven or guided by UDL? And I also noticed on your website that you do UDL, you apply it online to some sort of courses or teaching. So I'd love to learn more about that as well. Can you tell us more about that? I'd love to. So um, I've been working sort of with the Universal Design for Learning framework for over 10 years now. And I was first introduced to it when I was the diversity officer at the Australian Curriculum and Assessment Assessment and Reporting Authority, ACARA, and we were working on the design of the national curriculum to be inclusive of all learners. And through our student diversity advisory group, UDL came up and it just made so much sense. And so that's been at the heart of my work ever since. And the emphasis really is on the universal it, it's about ensuring that uh, curriculum, your lessons, your assessments, your school environment is designed for everybody. And one of the ways to support teachers to start thinking about that is instead of thinking about the average student and pitching to the middle and then making tweaks and changes and adjustments and accommodations for students sort of on the edges, it's flipping that perspective So universally designing your curriculum and your environment means thinking about the students who are on the edges. What do they need? And those edges can vary depending on, you know, the time of day, uh, a student's individual needs, 
crisis that is going on uh, in a family or, or globally? And how does that impact learning? And then you design for that. And the idea behind it is if you aim for the edges, you're casting your net more broadly and you will by default meet the needs of the students who typically the average, the bell curve that, that we would normally design for. So it just makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, of course it does. It makes a lot of sense when you explain it and it did when Lauren explained it as well. question I've got now just come up in my head as you were talking and thinking about this is what do you think are the main barriers to teachers just implementing a teaching practice like this, like UDL? I think one of the biggest challenges is teachers, there are, there are so many priorities and initiatives going in schools that whenever I'm asked to work with a school and do an introductory session on universal design for learning, I think teachers often feel that it's just another thing on top of what they're already doing. And really it's, I mean, universal design for learning really is a way of thinking and it's it's a framework. It's very, it's very simple, but by working with it, it really is about shifting the way we think and we design for our, our students and because of that really we need to let some other things go and and see where UDL can actually make life at, at, at school the, the the programming the assessing the designing for students more efficient but I think the challenge is it come it it is seen as something on on top of it's also a challenge to to really support that notion of what universal means I mean, UDL definitely is not just for students with disability, but I think often because it's such a fabulous tool for supporting students who you know, have quite complex needs, there is a misconception that it is for students with disability, but it is 100% for everybody. And, you know, I'll often use the analogy of when you go to the mall and it's two, three stories, you have the option to use the stairs, the travelator, the escalator, the lift, and you choose your option based on, you know, what you're doing at the time. It's the end of the day, you're tired, you're going to go on the escalator. You've got a shopping uh, trolley full of groceries, so you'll go in the lift. You know, you've uh, sprained your ankle, you've got a boot on, you're going to, you know, you're, you're probably not going to take the stairs, or you're thinking about health and fitness, and you are 100% going to go for the stairs to, you know, keep the cardio up. That's universally designing. It's, it's building in options that allows you to choose. And that, that's a, a really important uh, sort of message from UDL. That's, that's a fantastic analogy to lead me to my brain to think of this next question, which I was thinking of before as well. What I was going to say was in our community, the outcome of not having the appropriate adjustments is behaviour. So our kids will become dysregulated or something will happen and, and they, will they will express the, the fact that they haven't got those adjustments in place via their behaviour. So my question to you was, do you notice that when students who have invisible disabilities like, like our kids do not have things like UDL in place or appropriate adjustments, can you talk a little bit about what you notice in schools when those particular students, the neurodivergent students, have missed out on the, uh, teaching practices like UDL? Yeah, it's because the environment's not designed for them. 
And because it's not designed for them, it's not comfortable for them and it's not working for them. And so it's frustrating or challenging or overstimulating. And and what, as you say, is is seen is, is behaviours and a lack of engagement and often a perception that the, the fault is within the student. And, you know, another really important message around universal design for learning is that the barrier is in the environment, never in the student. And, and, and that's why it really is so much about a, a mindset. If we can shift that deficit way of thinking that the the deficit is in the child and look at it as being in the environment what is it about this environment that is not working for student a b c or d you can change the environment i think that can be um, very empowering for teachers because they have control over the environment they create in their classrooms they can change that they can't change their students So it's about what do I change in my environment to make this better for all of my students? And not everybody needs the same thing. Um, So if you think about all those different options for getting to the second floor of of them all, um, but it's about building in options so that students get to choose. So then it becomes empowering for the students because they don't feel they're being told what they have to do. It's very clear what they're going to learn. And then they're given a choice about how they're going to go about doing it. As I talk about this, it's also important to say that UDL isn't a one-off thing, that you UDL a lesson and then it's going to work for everybody. It very much is. a It's, it's a problem-solving approach. And it's, right, let's try something. Let's see if I chunk my lessons into, you know, 10 minute segments where there's a clear break and we move on to something else, or I present information in two different ways so that some students can take the information from the board, others may choose to have a worksheet on their desk. Let's see if that makes a difference. And then you look for it. Right. And that's something you can do for the whole class. I get it. Yeah. And and that's, that's the key thing. Universal it's for the whole class. So you may be making a change to the, the uh, classroom environment because of one student, but everybody potentially gets to benefit from it. And this is where UDL differs from differentiation. Differentiation is very much about identify what a particular student needs, and then that support or adjustment is given to them Whereas UDL is, is recognising that you need to build options in to the environment and you allow all stu- students to choose. You don't limit that to, to just one individual student, you know, and by default, that's, that's more inclusive. Yes, of course. Yes, it's a really, really important point to make because there is opposition from some teachers to differentiation because they feel it is more work. So that's a really positive factor for UDL. Thank you. And have you seen classrooms where teachers have, you know, sort of turned around things for particular students by applying universal practices for everybody? Absolutely. And and it is, it's such a joyful thing to listen to their reflections because 
it, it really is a journey. So a lot of the way that I work with schools is a, a coaching model. So we might um, catch up for an hour every fortnight or, or once a month to support them to just focus on a small one small thing at a time so it's not overwhelming. And when they see that shift, that they get that aha moment and also realise that it actually wasn't that complicated, but the impact is significant. It, it's it's a fantastic thing to, to be a part of and and then to know that that they are also then going to advocate for UDL as a strategy in in their schools which is what I'm sitting here thinking if there's any teachers listening I hope you heard that bit because that would be so wonderful if that was an outcome from our little chat today that a teacher walked away and, and went and spoke to their principal and said you know, can we look at this? That would be so good, wouldn't it, given what we've just heard? Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking us through that. That really drums in the messages. And now I wanted to talk to you about parents and teachers listening. They will know that all too well that there's different types of discrimination, ableism, exclusionary practices that are directed towards neurodivergent students. Issues such as gatekeeping, segregation and push out where students are just slowly pushed out of the school essentially by um, partial enrolment and practices like that. And they're often employed by well-meaning but under-supported teachers and principals. So Sarah, can you share with us how do you overcome these barriers in the work that you do and the service that you offer your clients? I, I guess the number one thing is building relationships. It's so important. That partnership between home and school is, is key. And too often we see that there's an imbalance in the parent-school rela- relationship. And sometimes that comes about because I think schools can be fearful about what what do we actually do? We're meant to be the experts here that, you know, they might be struggling with a, with a particular student and their needs. And so then sort of the default setting can be defensive. Parents can, uh, it can be exhausting to advocate for your child and where you always feel that it's an uphill struggle and and it's always a, a, a battle. And I think then that can be off-putting for the school as well. So very much in my, in my role, it's, a, it's around establishing everybody's role as part of a, you know, a child's support team everybody has an equal role everyone has an equal voice everyone has their own expertise to bring to the table the parent is expert in their child you know your child best you know the school are expert in curriculum that's that it that is their role but I think more than anything it's it's the listening you know when when a a meeting is scheduled for a parent to go into a school it's often a tight time limit there can be an imbalance of you know school staff to to parents and it's it's a rush to, to to get through and then that really genuine conversation doesn't happen so yeah for, for me it, 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 it working with a school or working with a parent it's then it's sort of the next thing is around planning what do you want to get out of this meeting and this is from a school's perspective and from a parent's perspective and the reality is in one hour <laughs> What does the conversation really need to focus on? And are there some things that can be, or documents that can be reviewed or can, you know, people put some ideas together prior to the meeting? So it then becomes a really purposeful meeting. And then set dates for review. And the other thing about 
sort of reviewing um, the discussion from a meeting, it doesn't have to be formal. So, you know, many schools will have, um, you know, one individual planning meeting for a year, maybe maybe two. And if that's the case for, for a parent, that there's, there's nothing to prevent you from having an informal conversation with a key contact or ally at the school to just check in. And it might be it might be a phone call so that you feel involved. So yes, all, all, all of that sort of comes back to the, the importance of relationships. And then sometimes when situations are tricky, it's about supporting families or supporting schools to understand what their rights and obligations are. And that might be looking at legislation. It might be looking at school policy and just say, are we going about things the way that we are required to or the way I am entitled to have things done? Jeez, mm, it's hard though, isn't it? <laughs> I... I, I... And that's my next question. <laughs> Not everyone has access to an advocate or someone like you um, to help them through, but parents are always, I mean, you've only got to look on social media to see what parents are saying. They're just trying to navigate education. They don't understand not only the legislation, but they don't even often feel confident to go forward into that meeting. It's quite intimidating. You've touched on a number of points that are advice, but do you have advice for parents trying to navigate this this whole situ, situation, which can be a very fractious environment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, talk to people. Talk to other parents. If, if you do have a good rapport with a member of staff at the school, talk to them. It doesn't matter if they're your child's teacher or not. You know, it's, it's about identifying who your contacts are, who your allies are. Also explore your PNC. So something that I've become involved in recently is um, establishing a subcommittee of our PNC at my local, well, my daughter's high school for diversity and inclusion. And uh, I mean, th- this was actually 100% on the back of uh, the work that Mark Hunya has done with family advocacy. So um, sort of I jumped on that bandwagon. But it's just creating another place for parents to come and get information it's informal, it's run by parents. We do have teachers join us, which is fantastic. So really, it's anybody who who's interested in talking about inclusion or challenges that they have for inclusion with their child to come to this informal gathering and um, and then we can sort of like point people in in the right direction. So it may be you know anybody listening who doesn't know who to connect with it might be to go along to your pnc meeting and request that um, inclusion is put on the agenda and then explore the possibility of setting up a subcommittee and there's quite a few subcommittees around in, in the northern sydney area now that people would be more than happy to support and then the other thing i mentioned family advocacy who are in new south wales um, there's imagine more in the act there's the community resource unit in Queensland. You know, all of these advocacy agencies provide fantastic support to, to families. So, yeah, just keep talking. If it doesn't feel right, uh, keep exploring, keep pushing until you, you find the right person to talk to because all of these agencies will connect you, you know, sometimes to me or I'll refer people on um, to you know, depending what your needs are. I'm sure you'll be quite busy. Uh, Anyway, I'm sure you're quite busy as it is, but you might get busier now as well. That's great advice, the PNC. So people can listen to 
more about the PNC in the earlier episodes of the podcast with Mark Hunyor and Karen Tippett from Family Advocacy. That That is a really great idea, great suggestion. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you for the work you've done to support that process. It's, it, is being, it is very successful. And my next question for you is, Sarah, if you had to choose just one thing that could be changed in education in Australia that would support all students and teachers, can you tell us what would that be? Again, that's an easy one for me to answer. It, it really is removing all alternative curricula that tends to force students with a disability into something other than what their their peers are learning about at, at school. So it's it, it's about um, so for example, in New South Wales, we have life skills outcomes and content that align to the regular syllabus. But the reality is students, that their learning becomes separate to, to their peers. It create, um, we have, you know, in other states, in Victoria and in WA, they have something called ABLES and they are additional levels of content prior to foundation. So it sets students with disability outside of the curriculum that every child has a right to access. It creates low expectations for learners because decisions are made that you're not working at the the age or the stage you should be and so you need to have something else rather than um, like that UDL designing to the edges rather than going okay so students of this age we are learning about electricity how am I going to make that relevant and accessible to my students who are on the edges? And I'm not saying it's easy, but the teachers who really do get their heads around this, they find that really delving into what is the, what is the point of this learning? What do I actually want all of my students to get out of this? How are they going to go about doing it? It benefits everybody. So it's, um, you know, having students with, you know, who need to go about their learning in a different way really challenges the teacher's thinking and it improves the learning for everybody, which again, is the research supports that for inclusion of students being in the class with their peers. So the, by actually having alternative curriculum for teachers to go to, we are giving them permission to go elsewhere. And so it makes it very difficult for them to see that there is an alternative because the curriculum authorities have created this other. But it is worth noting that at the time that I was working at ACARA on developing the national curriculum, there is no other curriculum, no alternative, no other levels for students with disability as part of the ACARA's national curriculum. The, the beauty of that curriculum is in, in its design and how teachers can use it flexibly. And using it flexibly doesn't mean that you choose content from lower levels. It means that it's the way you interpret the content that everybody has a right to access when they're a particular age and as they continue to move through schooling. From a practical point of view, what what would you advise parents to do to navigate that? Because I imagine that's something that like special schools and different segregated settings, and we were just talking about the kind of uh, discrimination that happens in pushing kids through <laughs> all these different categories and things. How can parents sort of avoid that 
being because I assume the outcomes are less if you do go into the lifestyles curriculum how can they try to navigate away from that uh, yes, I, I, I absolutely do. Um, I have worked with families where we've been very successful in ensuring that their child doesn't end up working from the life skills curriculum. It's often a, a long journey and many meetings and working with the school also to understand, you know, in New South Wales, what the requirements are with NESA. I think sometimes st- schools feel that they don't have a choice, but they really do. And, you know, I can think of one family in particular where it has been such a successful outcome for their child, academically, socially, higher expectations, achieving beyond where we thought or the school thought achievement could be. And she's getting what she's entitled to. Up front and centre, like everybody else. Yeah. But it, but it is, it, it, it's a challenge, and I think as a, as a family, if it doesn't feel right, if you're feeling forced into uh, or pressure to, uh, for your child to, to go on the life skills outcomes and content, you know, make contact with family advocacy, make contact with me, and we'll support you to, to navigate that. And I think, I mean, if a family feels confident to have that conversation with the school and they have a good relationship with the school, Sometimes it's just asking a, a simple question um, or even the, often the, the, the individual teachers do such a good job. And I think it's hard when families in, of high school students, they don't have that contact, regular contact with each of the individual teachers. But where I see this working really well is when you do have these great teachers who are happy to have these informal conversations with parents talk to them about what the learning is for the class and then they they work out together well okay what's the point of this learning what are you know if we strip it down to the bare bones what do they need to get out of this and then together they come up with different ways that students can go about achieving that goal that's UDL yeah they all link in together it's yeah fascinating this is really good because I've not heard it expressed this way before. This is quite different and very practical. It's so it's it just shows you how important it is those relationships with the school. Those certain teachers who just really go they get it and they go out of their way to, for that that child. They want to see them do well. And sometimes I think for those teachers it's about giving them permission to say they instinctively know that they could be doing things a, a particular way but you know, often I hear, oh, but Nessa won't allow it, or it's not compliant with Nessa. And I think it is, it's finding ways to really support or show that there is flexibility in how you can interpret the the syllabus and to to give teachers that permission to keep doing or to, to you know, change up what they're doing to, to really best support the needs of their kids, because there are some great teachers out there. And hopefully Nessa will come along for the ride because um, I do hear whispers that things are going to change in regards to exam accommodations and things like that, which are quite, can I say, ableist, you know, specifically literacy ableist. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, we do see, I know I've, I've heard that comment, but Nessa won't allow, for example, you to use a computer in your exams or something along those lines. And those are the sorts of things that hopefully they'll just realize are not not um 
providing equality for all students. And Lou, another another thing on the the disability provisions for exams. So Nessa only approves disability provisions for the HSC. So every other provision that happens at school is a school-based decision. And my argument would always be if at a point in time a child needs a laptop to keep them engaged, motivated, being successful, that is more important at that point in time than whether or not five years down the track they'll get it for the HSC because it's about what does this learner need now. When you're in year seven, it's about your learning in year seven and empowering the kids to see themselves as learners, not to set them up to fail so that by the time they get to the HSC, whether they have those disability provisions or not for the exam, you know, that, that they may have sort of lost the, 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 the passion or, or even the self-belief in, in learning. Yeah, it's a bit of a vicious cycle, isn't it? If we don't provide those adjustments now, then the child may become so disengaged or so far behind because they're not able to, like from my my son's example, he's got hypermobile joints and he has difficulty writing for a long time. So he needs to use the laptop. So that will keep him engaged with his work, keep him up with the work. So yeah, it does make sense that we just do those things wherever and however we can, regardless of what Nesaref got to say. (laughs) And, you know, those adjustments are also, they're they're meant to support the child to be able to do their learning, you know, on the same basis as their peers. So by not giving them a laptop, we're actually asking, if if they need it, um, we're actually asking them to work harder (laughs) to do the same thing. And this is where that universal design for learning frame of mind is really helpful because it allows you to ask the question, you know, what are we learning here? What do we need in order to be able to show that learning? And then the options become logical rather than compliant. It it is, it's about giving the kids what they need. Yeah, 100%. Wow, it's a really good way of seeing it in a very practical lens on that there. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to mention about the work that you do or your passions in this area? You're obviously doing really practical and relevant and up-to-date work. Is there anything else you would like to mention or do you have any books or resources? I mean, obviously I'll share the website and everything for your organisation, but, yeah, anything else? There, I mean, there are some websites that... That, that might be helpful for, for listeners. The, um, if, if you're interested, uh, parents in particular, learning more about UDL, the udl-irn.org website has a page that's UDL for the, for the, from the parent perspective. There are a few resources on there. There's something that I've created that sits on there as well that can just a simple tool to help families maybe with those conversations at at school for schools wanting to know more about universal design for learning cast c-a-s-t dot org will have everything you want to know about udl but if you are if listeners are interested in you know talking to somebody more about uh, udl implementation in australia or exploring it in their own schools then they're very welcome to make contact with me through our website inclusiveschools.com.au i'm going to be presenting at the um, illum learnings inclusion conference which is in may how did i miss that 
Okay. I've been sharing that because, do you know, Dr. Ross Green, he's like, he's like um, very important to us people in the neurodivergent world. And he is speaking at that conference and you as well. Wow. I will definitely be sharing that information. That's fantastic. So I'll be presenting with Janice Atkin, the co-founder of Inclusive Schools Australia. And we are really talking about everything you and I have been talking about today. It's providing access to age equivalent content by applying the principles of universal design for learning. Okay. Well, I think we've covered everything, haven't we? Do you think we have? Yes, I think that's all. I mean, I could I could waffle on for, for, for hours. But, um... So could I. That's the problem. <laughs> no, I think it's really good. We covered a lot, lots off. And, of course, we can always talk again. And um, hopefully parents will engage a lot with this as I really do feel it was a very practical chat we've had. Thank you very, very much for making yourself available for this. You're another amazing find for me how do I find you amazing people kindred spirits we we connected during during a zoom or something a webinar that's right it yeah. was the pnc thing I think which was great that's the way we do it we get out there and talk and meet people and that's why I did this podcast in the first place so thank you very very much for being here I'll sign us off now thank you Sarah you're very welcome thank you for having me no worries Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushell Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushell. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushell. And remember, just be nice to one another.